is Jimmy Scroggins. I'm the lead pastor at Family Church in West Palm Beach, Florida. Are you tired of going to conferences, reading books, and listening to speakers who tell you how to do church when you know that you cannot do what they are recommending? You've come to the right place on our podcast. We're going to give you principles, strategies, and ideas that you can implement right now with the resources you have at your church because this is church for the rest of us. Welcome back to Church for the Rest of Us podcast. My name is Steve Wright, and I'm here today with our lead pastor, Jimmy Scrogginson. Jimmy, today we're going to be tackling a tough topic that basically summarizes your last nine years of being here at Family Church. It hasn't always been rosy and easy, but uh, it's been your yeah, reality. Yeah, like it's real rosy and easy now. That's right. <laughs> but Jimmy, what I want you to do, I would like for you to, you know, just talk a little bit about your family. I know some of our listeners don't know you and your family. Give us a little bit of background about who uh, Jimmy Scroggins is. Yeah, Steve, I actually grew up in Florida. I'm a Florida native. My wife and I both did. And I lived all around the state of Florida because my dad is a high school football coach. And so from time to time, he would get a different job at a different school and we would move. And so I grew up, a lot of my time was in Jacksonville, Florida. That's Northeast Florida. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Florida's geography, if you grew up in Northeast Florida, that's basically culturally like South Georgia. And it's a lot different than it is in South Florida where we live now. But I grew up there in Jacksonville and had a great time growing up. We were part of some tremendous churches. My dad was a deacon in Baptist churches where we attended. My dad and a guy named Bob Tebow actually planted a church together, and we planted an evangelical free church. So a lot of my older elementary and early middle school years, I spent doing setup and teardown for a church plant in a community center there in the Jacksonville area near where we lived. When I was in high school, my dad took a job in DeSoto County, Florida, in a little town called Arcadia in southwest, kind of central southwest Florida. And it's a really small town, and uh, that's where I finished high school. I graduated from DeSoto County High School, and so I graduated with a bunch of rodeo riders and uh, <laughs> people who worked in, I worked in Orange Groves, and I worked with cattle and all of those kinds of things, and then I ended up going to the United States Military Academy at West Point. I hoped to play football there, and I went up there to New York right out of high school, and I was there for a few weeks when they found out that I had testicular cancer, and so I ended up spending some time at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Uh, we did chemotherapy for uh, several months, ended up getting that all healed up and cleared up. I wasn't able to go back to West Point, so I ended up moving back to Jacksonville and attending Jacksonville University. While I was there, I majored in economics, and I was hoping to go to law school and perhaps go into politics. While I was there, I also met Kristen, and we started dating, fell in love, and decided to get married. And during that time, through volunteering in the youth group at my church, the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, I felt God calling me to the ministry. And so I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. Instead of going to law school, I went to seminary. And I did graduate school at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. Chris and I got married, moved there, began to have kids. And we lived in Louisville for 15 years. And while we were there, I got to serve at some great churches, the First Baptist Church of Shepherdsville, lived in Evansville for just a brief part of that time, Evansville, Indiana, and served at Grace Baptist Church there under a great pastor, Mark Hearn, and then moved back to Louisville, and we were there for the rest of the time, and we served at Highview Baptist Church alongside a great leader, Dr. Kevin Ezell. And while we were there with Kevin, I served as a student pastor. Our church was growing. We got involved in the multi-site revolution, so I got uh, to be in charge of launching new campuses, and we launched six new campuses there. I got to be the 
the key leader who engaged another church as we created a strategic partnership or a merger and got all of that experience. Also, I got a PhD, started teaching at Southern Seminary, became a dean at Southern Seminary. So that's a, a unique opportunity to be on the president's cabinet with Al Moeller, a great leader in Louisville, and also as a senior executive leader, pastor with uh, Dr. Kevin Ezell. And so I got to sit with some great leaders and learn some great things about how organizations work and how they can change for the better. Uh, in 2008, I got a call from a guy named Brian McPherson. He was the chairman of the search committee for the First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach. And they were looking for a pastor and they called and invited me to begin conversations and ultimately to interview for that uh, position. And then uh, later on that year in 2008, First Baptist Church of West Palm Beach called me as their pastor and I accepted the call and we've been here ever since. Jimmy, tell the story real quick about the first sermon you preached here with the kids. And you, I mean, you guys yeah. came down here packed up. I mean, that's a pretty interesting story. It is. Well, Chris and I had a lot of kids. So we had seven kids while we lived in Louisville. They were all born in uh, hospitals there in Louisville. And so we moved down here. We thought we weren't going to have any more children. And it was a pretty stressful move because we had a really great life in Louisville, just like you and Tina had in North Carolina. Didn't really know that we wanted to move, but we moved down here. We felt God calling us. And my first sermon, I got up and preached, and they had my family standing up there on the platform with me, and I was real proud of them. Christian's beautiful, my children are beautiful, and I'm They're all dressed up. up. Yeah, they're I mean, dressed. you're ready it's to like go. Easter oh, Sunday yeah. on steroids, and so we're all up there making a good first impression. And I made a joke offhand. I said, well, you don't have to worry about us having any more kids. Believe me, we've got plenty. And everybody laughed, oh, and yeah. they, yeah, and so we got home, we were eating lunch, and kids kind of went off to play and some of them took naps or whatever. And Kristen says, Hey, I got to talk to you about something kind of important. And I thought, is she going to leave me? I mean, what, oh, what yeah, what's she going said, on? Cause she was, she was right. kind of nervous. She said, look, you got up and told that whole church that we we're going to have any more kids. You've been kind of stressed out over this move. And I didn't want to tell you, but <laughs> we're going to have one more kid. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding. So on your first Sunday, you stand I, in front of the whole congregation I, and tell them a big fat whopper. That's right. I lied to our whole congregation. That's how we started our relationship as pastor with this church. And then also my first day on a big job, the first, my first day as senior pastor of a church. I'd never been a senior pastor before. I also found out I was a dad. So it was a, it was a really great day, but kind of a, a weird day that I promise you I'll never forget. I, I bet not. Jimmy, this past weekend, uh, I received a phone call from Dr. Tony Smith, and he was retiring from ministry. And it really just brought back a lot of memories. And, you know, he he really, early in my ministry days, was so, you know, just— Sure. I mean, it was just incredible having a guy mentor you and love you like that. And, you know, I was thinking about all of the things that we did at that little small church. It was a church plant just getting started, and here was a faithful guy just serving the Lord as the best he could. And he hired me, took a huge risk on hiring me as a staff that was showing real, he knew had no idea what he, he was had doing. no idea right but you know really since that time you've served in bivocational roles and small churches and so have i i mean but that's really one of the reasons why we're doing this podcast and you know a couple of weeks ago we were able to host a conference called yeah. sharper conference and yeah, really we're going to do it again this next year on march 1 and you know when you're at conferences like that and you're running into all of these pastors and all of these men that are serving the church so faithfully you really get a sense of how difficult their jobs are. And you really get a sense of just what's happening in their churches. Would you talk to us for a little bit about just what's happening in churches? I know as you're out there meeting these pastors, they're sharing a lot of information with you. Well, they are. And, uh, you know, research shows us that big churches are getting bigger 
and small churches are getting smaller and going away. And that's kind of the trend that you see across the country. But one of the things that I think is very exciting is we're actually seeing a new wave of healthy, small and medium-sized churches. And so while while some churches are fading away and basically aging out of relevance, some other pastors are going into established churches and revitalizing these churches. And there's a whole movement of revitalization and strategic partnerships and mergers that I think is elevating all of that. But the truth is most standalone small churches in today's world, even if they have a dynamic pastor or a pastor with a lot of vision and a lot of energy, they are not well positioned in our culture to make a difference. They're ill-prepared for the culture that is and even more ill-prepared for the cultures that for the culture that's coming. Most of our traditional churches that have been around for a long time, whether you live in a, if you live in a rural area, you may actually attend or pastor a church that's named after a geographical feature, right? So, you know, you're named after a mountain or a creek mm-hmm. or a bend right. or something like that. Well, that church has been there a long time. And the reason that church was planted is back 100 years ago, 200 years ago, when they started that church, people rode around to churches on horses. And so you needed these churches in every community. Well, now we ride around in vehicles and we can go a lot further, a lot faster. And so the question is, what is the relevance of these churches? And a lot of these churches are not really geared for the technology of the present or the future. A lot of these churches organizationally are bogged down with old structures, you know, monthly business meetings Mm -hmm. to discuss whether or not we're going to actually replace that monitor on the secretary's computer or who's going to, who's going to decide what the new flowers are going to look like in the ladies restroom. And when you are bogged down by structures like that, pastors can feel paralyzed. The other thing is pastors in smaller churches especially in a Baptist context, which is our tribe, are constantly being evaluated by all of these different groups, the deacons and the personnel committee and whatever. And their authority gets challenged regularly at these business meetings. And it paralyzes them because they know whatever decision they make, they, they don't feel like they have the freedom to lead because they're going to have to be held accountable and they're going to be challenged on all of every decision they make the first Wednesday of the month or whenever it is. The real truth is, though, this is not a time for despair. This is a time for optimism because there's a great hunger in our nation for spiritual vitality. There's a great hunger for people to tell the truth. Even millennials, I know a lot of the Pew studies and others say millennials are walking away from church, but my experience is millennials are looking for authenticity and for somebody to tell them the truth. Right. And if churches will do that, they can actually connect with a whole new generation of people. The other thing is, one of my heroes is a guy named Arthur Ashe. He was a tennis great, African-American tennis player. And I used to watch him play when I was growing up. And Arthur Ashe popularized a saying. He said, everybody needs to start where you are. You need to take what you have, and you need to do what you can. Right. Start where you are, take what you have, and do what you can. And he actually coined that phrase from George Washington Carver, a great African-American inventor in the 1800s. And so This is kind of what I would say to encourage any pastor. Start where you are, take what you have, and do what you can. Don't cry about what you don't have, but take what you do have and try to move your organization forward. Well, this morning, Jimmy, I had the opportunity to spend two hours with a local church pastor who came to our office. And, you know, it's really interesting talking to this young man because, you know, as he, he really has a desire to see his church turn around. He wants to reach his community. He wants to see his church grow. But one of the things, he's only been the pastor of this church for about six months, and he already feels kind of stuck. Yeah, he gets constricted. He's constricted because he's wanting wanting his staff to like him. He's wanting his elders and deacons to to really think that he's doing a good job. 
But, you know, where you start is really important. And one of the things that he's becoming, you know, keenly aware of is just the brutal facts. And so here in South Florida and really across America, there are things that are happening on the landscape that make it really makes it really difficult for a lot of these pastors. And, you know, I was doing a little research earlier this week, and some of the research points to the fact that there's 80 percent of the 250,000 Protestant churches in America are either stagnant with no growth or currently declining. Right. Another research stat said that 4,000 and of 7,000 churches close between 4,000 and 7,000 churches close their doors every day or every year. And our friend Tom Rainer puts that estimate even higher. He says that 8,000 to 10,000 churches will close every year. And then one last stat said that between the years of 2010 and 2012, more than half of the churches in America did not even add one new member. So when you think about what's actually happening on the landscape and what churches are facing, it does look pretty bleak and it looks very difficult. Yeah. And so this is why, honest, I was talking with a pastor today as well. I met with a pastor and had lunch with a guy, a pastor of a, of a small church here in our community. But he was saying, well, I, I feel like we're failing or I feel like we're not doing as well as we should. And I said, look, man, just the fact that your church is alive. I mean, he's basically brought this little church back from the dead. He's doubled their attendance. He's actually succeeding really, right. really well. Right. But when he looks around at some of the mega churches and the people who are speaking at the conferences and doing and writing the books, he feels like, wow, I'm not measuring up to what those guys are doing. And this is one of the reasons we have this podcast, Church for the Rest of Us, because most of us are going to pastor churches where we do not get invited to speak at conferences. The vast majority of our listeners right. are never going to publish the book. The vast majority of our listeners are not being held up as a model in some uh, venue and treated like a celebrity, the rest of us are just out here trying to make it. Well, and and Jimmy, that's why it's so important. Well, and you think about just the the heroes that you and I have. A lot, I mean, a lot of these guys that we are actually the best friends with are the guys that are in these in the trenches with some of these small churches because those guys are doing some amazing work. And they don't get thanked a lot. You know, that is one of the issues, though, Steve. Just the research that you are citing. If you're going to be a leader of a church, I don't care what size church it is. I don't care what denomination it is. If you're going to be a leader of a church, your number one job, according to Peter Drucker, as a leader is to define reality for your organization. And for a pastor, it's even more. Peter Drucker's writing that to CEOs of corporations. For pastors of churches, we have to define reality because no one else is going to actually do it. Jim Collins wrote a book that most of our listeners have read, Good to Great, wrote a long time ago. But he said, look, one of the key elements, one of the key items for a leader is to confront the brutal Facts, and we have to do that in every church. I know when I came to First Baptist West Palm Beach, when I was meeting with the search committee, they were asking me a lot of questions about strategy and, well, what would you do to reach out to the homeless people and how could you support our medical clinic? And so I was kind of trying to answer these questions, but I'm thinking, you guys have a bad reputation in your community. You guys have a declining attendance. You guys haven't had a pastor in five years. You guys have two major front page of the newspaper scandals going right. on. And and finally, one of the commitment who I love is a prayer warrior. These guys were my dear friends, but he asked me, he says, well, I want to know what would your strategy be for reaching Jewish people? And I don't know what happened to me, <laughs> but I just got like kind of upset in the meeting. And I just said, look, I don't know how to reach Jewish people. We don't have a lot of those in Louisville, Kentucky. So right, this isn't, right. so when I get to South Florida, I'll try to figure that. But you guys are asking the wrong questions. And so then... I don't know, something came over me and I said, your church is like a patient on the gurney in the emergency room and the machine that he's hooked up to is doing this. Boop. 
<laughs> you, mean, you were using your gift of right. exhortation. I was using. I was encouraging him. Yeah. And so I said, and the doctor needs to run in there and grab those shock paddles and rub them together and say, clear, gushka, clear, gushka, <laughs> and try to raise this patient from the dead. Right. And you're asking me, hey, Get How fast do you think he can run a marathon? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if he can ever run a marathon, but right now we need to keep him from dying. Yeah. And that's how I felt about our church. Well, that's where a lot of pastors and a lot of search committees and a lot of churches are. They haven't really gotten their arms around the brutal facts of where they actually are. They haven't actually come to grips with the reality that they are in. And the thing is, you really can't start where you are until you agree on where you are. Right. You can't take what That's you right. have until you agree on, this is really what we have. And you can't do what you can until you answer the first two issues. What do you have and where are you? And this is what a pastor has got to do. It would be better for me to get fired trying to define reality lovingly and kindly as is my nature oh, of course but but define reality it would be better for me to get fired and fail trying to define reality accurately than for me to allow the people that I'm trying to lead to live in an illusion about where we are and what we have and how we're going to move forward yeah well Jimmy I think a lot of pastors are out there today and they're like their desire I mean none of them want to see their church just live plateaued and declining and just hanging on for dear life I mean that's no not the goal or the desire. Nobody went into ministry to do that. Did no, they? No Nobody one. said, I think I'm going to be the Dr. Kevorkian of churches. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm going to kill my church. <laughs> I'm putting them to death. I'm putting them to death. Kindly and gently. Right, right. And so, you know, most of these guys, they actually want and they have a great desire to see their church grow. And in, But in the middle of it, there honestly, there's a lot of things that they're maybe personally that they're struggling with. There's family things that are going on. There's maybe everybody in their church don't, does not like them. And though, so they become very discouraged. And I want you to just, if you would, I mean, maybe a lot of our listeners today are guys that are out there serving on the front line. They're discouraged. They're having a hard time. What words of encouragement do you have for that pastor? And speak to them from your own personal experience. Well, here's the thing, Steve. It's easy for somebody to look at family church and say, okay, you guys have eight locations, nine locations, 10 locations, and you guys have millions of dollars and facilities. And there's a lot of things that people would come to and say, you guys cannot possibly understand where I'm at, but I want you to know I've been a staff member. I've been a, I've been a, a bivocational staff member. I've been a free intern. I've been a part-time staff member. I've been a three-quarter time staff member, which if they ever call you a three-quarter time staff member, that means they're not paying you enough and they're working right, you really hard. Right. Well, you and I know about that. And I was thrilled to do that. And we hire a bunch of them around here. So, <laughs> so, so we, we know what that means. I know what it means to be in a small rural church. I know what it means to serve in an inner city church. I've done that. And I know what it means to serve in a traditional church with steeples and a column. And it's Baptisty, Baptisty, traditional as it can get. So I want you to know, guys, listeners that are out there serving, I do feel your pain. I have been there. In fact, in a lot of ways at family church, believe it or not, we are still there. That's we right. are still trying to define reality so we can start where we are, use what we have and do what we can. And we're still transitioning. But I would just say this. You were called to ministry just like I was, and there was a time in your life when God put his hand on you, and he called you to the ministry, and you accepted that call, and God has given you his Holy Spirit, and the gospel is still powerful and effective to save, and the church is still God's number one ordained instrument in this world to bring men and women to faith and to see them to become disciples of Jesus, and I would tell you, don't give up on the gospel don't give up on your calling and don't give up on your church. Because here's the bottom line truth. I'm married to a wonderful woman, Kristen. 
Bob Barton discipled me when I was in college, and Bob Barton was a pastor in Jacksonville. He he was instrumental in me being called to ministry. And the night before I was married, Bob said, Jimmy, if you have the love and confidence of your wife and you have the calling of God on your life and in your heart, mm-hmm. you need nothing else. Wow. That's if you good. have the love and respect of your wife and you have the call of God in your heart, you need nothing else. And I would say that to every one of our listeners, to you who are discouraged, to feel like you're grinding and out, putting one foot in front of the other. Jesus is still crucified and raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit is still active. The Bible is still true. The gospel is still powerful to save. And your call that God put on your life still exists and burns in your heart. Reignite that fire. And I want you to not give up. And I want you to be in contact with us at Church for the Rest of Us. Be in contact with us at Family Church. We want to encourage you and bless you. And that's really why we have this podcast right here to encourage brothers and sisters who are out there grinding it out for Christ, building the kingdom of Jesus. Well, Jimmy, that's right. And, you know, the stuff that you just shared, it's really, that's really good. Very encouraging. I hope that our listeners today will feel encouraged. And I hope that they will actually believe that it's worth what they're doing to transition their traditional church for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, it's worth it. It's worth it. And, you know, we're, we're going to continue this conversation over the next two weeks. Th- this is a three-part series. Right. So we're going to continue to be talking about this. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about next week, which I think all of our listeners will really enjoy, is about killing the sacred cows. Kill them. And in Slaughter our, them. Right. And in our, Let their blood run over the altar. What do we call it here, though, Jimmy? Killing the sacred camel. Killing the sacred camel. But our listeners are going to have to come back next week to listen to that story. So I hope that they'll join us. Thank you so much for joining us on today's podcast. I'd love for you to follow me on Twitter at Jimmy Scroggins or check out FamilyChurchNetwork.com to chime in on our blog. We want your feedback on today's podcast. Plus, we want to know what you are doing because we want to learn from you too. Hey, until next time, this is Jimmy Scroggins and you've been listening to Church for the Rest of Us.